NXT, New York City. Welcome to Hot 97's Street Soldiers, the hottest talk on radio. Hosted by Lisa Evers. I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers on Second Chances After Prison. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Follow me on Twitter, at Lisa Evers, and Instagram, at Lisa Evers. We're talking about second chances after prison versus repeat offenders. Do you think former felons should be given help to start over, or do you believe that once you're a criminal, always a criminal? Let me know what you think on my Twitter and Instagram page, at Lisa Evers. Now, a couple of developments recently are making us take a really close look at this issue that so, just so impacts our communities in such a strong way. We saw President Obama recently visiting Newark. He said it is never too late and that people make mistakes and with a little help that they can be put on the right path. We also saw the murder of a police officer and his accused killer, Tyrone Howard, with his extensive criminal record and programs that he had been eligible for. But there he was back out on the streets again. We also saw a convicted felon be reelected mayor of Bridgeport after doing a seven year bid for corruption. He was formerly the mayor. He did seven years time on federal corruption charges, but he got reelected. You know, he's back in office now. Then there's the issue of recidivism. A national study found in many states, two-thirds of released prisoners are re-arrested. Now, we've done many shows here on Street Soldiers about incarceration, about mass incarceration, particularly in communities of color, about the issues that young people, especially young men, face when they are growing up and they don't have an education and their only role models for men are the guys that are out there on the corner uh, doing negative things in the community. But what we're really looking at now is where do you draw the line when you have somebody that is in their 20s or in their 30s and they have a history, how do you determine you know which way they can go and whether the risk to possible risk to society is worth the risk of saving this individual's life and helping them to be a contributing member to their community. So we're going to find out what our guests have to say about this, about where we draw the line and they're bringing a lot of different experiences on this topic uh, to our show and to our studios and we really appreciate it. Joining us is Eldridge Hawkins Jr. He's a former mayor of Orange, New Jersey, currently a businessman. He owns the company Black Belt Investigations, licensed in New York and New Jersey. And he's also a retired West Orange police officer. Eldridge, thank you so much for being with thank us. Thank you for having me back. And uh, Tom Burney is a retired NYPD detective, law enforcement commentator on TV and radio. He also works in training police departments on uh, cultural competency and diversity. Tom, thanks so much for being with thank us. Thank you. Also with us is someone I met a long time ago at the very beginning of Street Soldiers, Bishop Darren Ferguson. He is the pastor at Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Arverne, that's in Far Rockaway. He is the campus life manager for LaGuardia Community College, and he's an outspoken advocate of hip-hop and the church. We want to do a show on that at some point in the future, hip-hop and uh, the whole gospel music trend as well. But he's here today because of his experiences and what he's done with his life. He's also written an autobiography now in its fourth printing. It's called How I Became an Angry Black Man from Prison to the Pulpit. Darren, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We appreciate it. Also with us is David Chianese. He's a retired NYPD detective and founder of the organization called LESMA. It's a law enforcement and supporters for media accountability. David, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Eldridge, I want to start with you on this. People think if a guy can get elected mayor of the largest city in Connecticut and Bridgeport with a criminal record like that, anything is possible. 
What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that uh, that scenario is not unique. Um, anybody that knows, uh, I think maybe Marion Barry down in D.C., uh, there, there is a history of sometimes uh, people getting in some trouble and successfully getting uh, back into elected office. Uh, but I think the larger issue, uh, not just focusing on the electeds, uh, but is whether or not people have uh, paid their debt to society once they've completed that bid, once they get out of jail, right? Our criminal justice system in some ways is founded on this notion that you'll pay your debt, you'll be rehabilitated, and you'll get out. We know that doesn't always work. Uh, but if we believe that to be true, and we're not going to simply discard these people once they are convicted of a crime, then we have to then believe that they should have a fresh start or be, the, be able to walk through that door and begin anew. Um, former NYPD detective David Chianese and founder of Lesma, the uh, idea, some people feel that criminals are getting the benefit of the doubt in some of these high-profile cases, like the murder of the police officer. Um, well, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think the problem is, though, not so much the criminal justice system as far as whether or not they, people need a second chance. I believe even in this case, the guy deserved the second chance. It is, like you said before, how many chances are too much and who's going to be held accountable for it? Our system now, politicians are exempt, uh, district attorney's going to be exempt, and the judge is going to be exempt. And until their feet are held to the fire for letting this guy go, and really we're not going to see any effective change. All right. Bishop uh, Darren Ferguson, tell us about your story, because we met when you were incarcerated at Sing Sing at the very beginning, a long time ago when Street Soldiers was, was first on the air. And your journey is one that many people look at as a positive sign that gives a lot of people hope. Tell us about what you were going through. Sure. I served uh, eight years and eight months in New York State Correctional Facilities, 16 months on Rikers Island, and then seven years and change upstate um, for attempted murder in the second degree. And then uh, I was released in October of 1998, kind of hit the ground running, um, worked at the Osborne Association, uh, worked as a youth minister at Abyssinian Baptist Church, worked as youth director for Al Sharpton, um, several other things. Now I pastor my own church, and I'm working at LaGuardia uh, with the Black Male Empowerment Cooperative. And what was it made the difference in you not going back? The, the greatest difference was family and support and love. And not just from my family. I had support of, of different church groups. And oddly enough, the church group that was the biggest support uh, for me when I got out was not a black church. It was a white, upstate, conservative, mostly Republican church who decided to put their arms around me and love me and support me when I was released, bought me a suit, did everything for me. Even when my first wife passed away, they paid for the funeral. So that kind of support from the community, it just speaks volumes and it gives, it's kind of wind beneath your wings because you know that people believe in you and there's a lot riding on you, just not your family. Did it make you look at yourself differently in your experiences and what you'd done? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a great deal. I don't think there's anybody who's committed a crime with somebody who's hurt that doesn't feel some sort of guilt or remorse, whether they'll admit it or not. And, and when people come to you and say, we're not going to judge you based on the worst day of your life, that means that the best days are ahead and, and, and it's okay. It kind of gives you the, the permission to live in those best days. And then Tom Verney, when you hear his story, what do you think about that in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of the support? Because a lot of times it, it does take the community. It takes various communities coming together to help these these guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, as in other conversations, I think that we've probably heard over the years, you know, that the old saying, it takes a village kind of thing. Uh, and that's what's lacking, I think, with a lot, especially with a lot of our younger people that, that get into trouble. They're, they don't have that support system. You know, thankfully, you know, he had that and, 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 and you know, thank God he did, and he was able to turn his life around. So he is, you know, basically a classic example of that it is possible. You know, it's going to have to come from within, from the person that initially got into trouble and did the time, what have you. 
there has to be some self-initiation as to what are they, where they're going to go from here. You know, we can't assume that the correctional system is going to rehabilitate people because that doesn't always happen, correct? Correct. Okay, so, you know, and, and, and in many cases, it's the complete opposite. You know, in many cases, they become better criminals while they're serving time, and then they come out and, and go out and, and become recidivists and then commit more crime. So, you know, we have to, in some way, uh, some parts of the community are going to have to be there for that person, assuming that they don't have uh, a support structure in place when they get out. So whether it's a, a private organization, a community-based organization, a local uh, churches or, or uh, places of worship that have some sort of programming in place that can take this person from when they get out, put them in some kind of re- rehabilitation program where they can now have that second chance if they don't have that support system from, from home. All right, and also the criminal justice. I was in Sing Sing Prison last week doing an interview, which is going to be in, up in a, a couple of weeks on uh, Fox 5 News at 10, which follow me on Twitter, and I'll, you'll know the date and the time of that pretty amazing interview and uh, of, what, of, of what this young man was saying and, and telling me. But the deputy superintendent for programs at Sing Sing, John Wood, he said, you know, Lisa, the philosophy is starting to change. In the past year, where it used to be with correction corrections it was lock them up throw away the key now it's about having programs getting them uh, integrated into society and doing things before uh, the prisoners are even released so that they have ties so there's more programs coming in there's different rules there's more communication with the outside so if they are doing the right thing there's the there's the incentives for it but Eldridge there's a lot of people that say wait a minute you know if you can get unlimited telephone calls you got TV in your cell your a private TV which they have there in their their cells that they can watch all night long if they want to, that this is not really sending the right message. Well, let's 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 be real and honest. Uh, going to jail is not a vacation. You know, I don't think most people would want to be there. Uh, it is not a pleasant place. Uh, and as much as we talk about uh, giving second chances, which is key, I, I believe people also need to be held accountable. You know, I'll be honest. You know, when I was mayor, I I made it clear to to the judiciary or the judges that I appointed that we needed people to start going away uh, because part of the issue was uh, folks getting in and out of jail, a revolving door. Right, that was nonstop. People would be arrested on on Friday. They're back out on Monday. Um, p- com- residents complaining that the same drug dealers on the corner. So this is an issue uh, that has to be addressed. So we have to be firm, uh, but there's balance, I believe, that 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 has to be in place. So we sentence them appropriately, uh, and I think that nationally, when we're looking at some of the things that the president is discussing with respect to uh, uh, crimes that are only hurting the individual, right? Drug crimes that maybe. But is it what what about that phrase? Let's talk. Can we talk about that for a second? Because sure, sure. I want to find out more about what the president said, because I know you were there at the event Mm -hmm. um, with President Obama, but but this idea that there are victimless crimes, are there really victimless crimes, David, Uh, from what you've seen? uh, I mean, even if somebody's doing doing drugs? I mean, you're you're doing, you know, if you're doing drugs, you know, your family's affected, your neighborhood's affected, you know, how are you supporting it? Are you stealing from an employer? Are you stealing from a neighbor? Are you taking from your parents? Uh, You know, are, are there assaults? How many times I've gone to calls? Uh, back on my days in patrol where it was, uh, you know, my daughter, she's, she's, you know, got involved with the wrong crowd, got involved with drugs, she's stealing money, or she comes home, she's threatening my mom. One way or the other, there's, listen, we're a society, we're tied together. That's how a society works. You're affecting somebody when you do it. No, ma- no matter what. But Eldridge, the, the president's idea of focusing on the, this whole drug issue, too, mm-hmm. which is so huge right now. 
his idea was this is the core, this is the root of a lot of this. Well, well, certainly there's a difference between an armed robbery suspect and someone that get pull, gets pulled over with a dime bag of weed in their in their car. Um, so I, I think that there has to be some some uh, practicalness, if you will, to the grading of how we sentence these individuals. The punishment has to fit the crime. We always talk about that. Uh, and if we look at the statistics, uh, I think there's about 2.2 million people in prison now, right? And that's up from only 500,000 in 1980, as reported by the White House. So there's a significant increase, which means there's a cost to the system as far as funding these jails. Uh, but more importantly, these folks are going to get out. Uh, and the key uh, note, I believe, in my opinion, that the president spoke to that day was the notion of eliminating the box, right? I'm, I have my quote fingers up for those that are listening. Uh, um, that box on job applications that say, are you convicted of a crime? Uh, because a lot of times, if we're being honest again, when we see that, right, employers typically, they'll just shred it. They'll throw it out. They'll say, well, he's been convicted of crime. We don't want them. Uh, and the president was very clear that uh, it's not to suggest that we should ignore uh, your criminal background, right? Certainly there are certain positions that are sensitive to that, but let's give uh, those that have um, served their time, right, paid their debt to the society, an opportunity to get their foot in the door. Right. And for those that are saying, oh, well, we don't care. It doesn't matter. Well, here's the reality. If we can't help these people get through the door and get a leg up, they're going to reoffend. Right? right. That That's the cycle. Right. They get out with with no opportunities. They go back to the same communities doing the same things with their same friends. They can't survive. So they default back to what they know. They get back on the corners. They get back to robbing, get back to stealing. So if we want them to break the cycle, it, we have to be a little less selfish and say, let's help them. Or they may be climbing through my window tomorrow. Right. That's the hard reality of it. Lisa, we have this concept of a healing community, right? And I think that this idea is a level of commitment and accountability that has to be inserted into this national conversation. Having worked on the Band the Box uh, initiative here in New York City and had chaired a meeting at the White House before President Obama was talking about this executive order, one of the things that people have to understand is that the accountability is in both law enforcement and in terms of the community. So there's a dual responsibility here. The responsibility of law enforcement is to enforce the law, obviously, and to not overly police communities because of who lives there, right? But at the same time, the community has a responsibility to work efficiently with the police department. And, and as I was talking to, to the gentleman outside saying that we should start thinking about using police departments in much the same way we use sanitation. Right. When you have garbage in your house and it starts to smell, you wrap it up, you put it outside of your home and sanitation takes it away. In the same way, we need to ostracize people who do trashy things in our neighborhoods and push them outside of the community so the police departments can take them away because there is no no one coming in on a white horse. There is nobody coming to save us. There is no initiative that's going to make everything better. This has to be a, a, an accountability of everybody along the continuum to not just deal with the pound of cure, which has gotten us where we are now, but to deal with the ounce of prevention. Okay, but it's not that. Let me just play devil's advocate because I was in the in the projects where the, uh, the, the public housing developments where the officer was killed and also I've done a number of stories with young gang members yeah. of how, how they came into it. A lot of these households are headed by women. Yes. And a lot a lot of times, even the even the teens that are trying to stay away from this life, st staying away from the street life, they can avoid it on themselves. But then, when their mom gets threatened, or the younger brother or sister gets threatened if they don't join, how do you how do you take out the trash when you may be putting your family or your, or your mother at risk? We have to get rid of this idiotic notion of stop snitching, right? Stop snitching 
in, in the community means, oh, don't tell on anybody that's doing crime. That's ridiculous. Snitching is when myself and another person are committing crimes together, he gets caught and he tells on me to get less time. That's snitching. When you tell the cops, the guns are over there, he did it, you're performing a community service. So it has to be a mindset change that has to happen within our communities. And also, everything from economics to schools to all of those things have to be talked about because a child has to be protected along the entire continuum of its life or a child will do what it needs to do to protect itself. And sometimes kids get involved in gangs because they feel like they have no choice because of those same threats. But we have to take the opportunity for that threat away by fighting for making sure that our families are safe by having those conversations and working together with law enforcement. Okay, but Well, he raises a lot of good points. And certainly there is a community component. I, I believe there's not just one thing to fix it, right? We obviously have to have police enforcement, which is the arresting piece. But at the end of the day, it's one person, one individual that pulls the trigger or that robs that woman or, or waits in the hallway like this guy was in the Bronx last week for an eight-year-old girl to try to abduct her. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, it's one person. Sure, sure, it's one person. And they should be held accountable. No doubt about it. You heard me talk about it earlier when we said I was pointing judges. And I said people need to go away. That's for sure, right? But there's a couple pieces to this, not just how we deal with them when they get out, but how we can prevent these things from happening from the onset, right? Exactly. And, and where I was going with the previous comment was that some of this is community policing, right? getting police on the street, walking, talking, uh, creating relationships with people in the community so that perhaps they're better positioned to de-escalate things because they know this young man because they watched him grow up or perhaps e more easily to get information to solve crimes because there's been plenty of crime scenes that I responded to as mayor. We're talking to the captains in charge and there's a ton of people around but nobody saw anything. Right. It makes it very challenging to to solve these crimes uh, but also as the pastor said, there's a there's a breakdown, especially in the urban communities and the black communities with respect to that family unit whether it's single mothers, young mothers, Kid, babies having babies, broken homes, all that, all those things play into uh, our youth's ability to navigate life, right? And when that's fractured, it becomes a problem. David, what does it do to a detective when you, you, you know somebody saw something and you know something happened and you're just like, you know, everybody's there, you, you, you know everybody knows everybody it, it and nobody you. wants to help? It kills you. Um, last thing we want is somebody to get away with a crime. You know, when we go to a homicide or a shooting, we want to get the guy before the next person shot or killed. Um, you know people saw it, obviously. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you're in New York, Chicago, somebody saw something, somebody knows something. And uh, I think the Reverend's right. It's the, the, the big part of it is this snitching. I've heard it on the street when we interview people. But I also think a big part of it is it's, listen, as a, as a whole, as society, there's a lack of morals, there's a lack of values. It does tie into the broken family. It does tie into, I mean, it's not a race thing. It's not a cultural thing. You see it all over the place. Everybody, white, black, Asian, doesn't matter. We have to get back to those values. Um, if we don't, you know, listen. This is what we got, and this is what we're going. Well, Tom Verney, part of the mm -hmm. part of the part of the problem too, part of the issue with this too, is that is what President Obama has called the disconnect between police mm -hmm. and the community. What you keep talking about is everybody. Basically, we're a long way from being at that point yeah. where people say people know they need the police. You want the police mm -hmm. officers to come when you when you're in a jam and you you need nine one one. You want them to come. But by the same token, on the police will say we don't know what we're going to encounter when we get there. If people are really going to you know what's going to happen. So there, there's this tremendous distrust. And doesn't that just make it easier for the criminals? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, I've been saying for years, I, I was a beat cop. You know, I, I did plain clothes work on, on patrol. I taught in our, in our police academy. And I worked for the chief uh, when Chief Banks was the chief of community affairs, who you're probably familiar with. Uh, you know, because he's a very, he's a very uh, faith-based man. And he worked with a lot of uh, 
how's and community worship. oriented. He's been Very on community oriented. So I work with him as a citywide liaison. So I would respond to everything from planes landing in the Hudson River to Occupy Wall Street, all that stuff. But a lot of gang shootings, police-involved shootings. You know, we, we'd be there, a to try to disseminate. Uh, factual information as much as we could without compromising an investigation, obviously, but also to yeah, and partially to do that to to try to make it as transparent as possible so people could get factual information so that there was that much less distrust of the police. Look, there's there's a general disconnect, like you said, between police and community in that the community doesn't really know many times what goes into policing. They're, they're not really the, what they know is largely based on what they see on TV and in the movies and whatnot. So their knowledge of what really goes into policing and what police can and cannot do is largely based on on media, you know, influence versus what they really know. The NYPD, as well as a number of other police departments, have courses like the Citizens Police Academy, which is a highly successful course. It's a 14-week course here in New York City, where someone can go through, actually go to the police academy for three hours a, a, a night, one night a week for 14 weeks, and learn a bird's eye view as to what a, a recruit would learn in six months. It's very transparent. They're reading the same materials that the recruits get. There's nothing removed, nothing hidden, no smoke and mirrors. And, and they actually get a bird's eye view as from everything from domestic violence, emotionally disturbed people, uh, the use of force when they can and cannot shoot, they put them through a firearm simulator. And this is what people need to know. People need to know what was the method behind the madness as to why police do what they do. Well, he, he raises a lot of good points, but but to piggyback on, on both of your comments, the, the, there is a, certainly a trust issue, but I think com companion with that or, or in tandem with that or conjunction with that is this notion of fear. Right, this the fear of the police, right? Uh, but the police are not the enemy. Although there's been some incidents that have contributed to friction between the that law narrative is a very strong uh, narrative and, and, that's out there. Yeah, and right. the, and the residential community. But there's also a fear f between them uh, and the criminal element, right? That's really at the core of this no snitching thing. The the idea of retaliation. I don't want to call and report it because you're going to come to my house and ask me questions, and the bad guy across the street is going to know I called. I don't want to be robbed. But the reality is, is that if you don't stand up, right? Inevitably, your turn to become a victim will come around, right? So you're surrendering the streets to the criminal element if you refuse to, let's call it what it is, take a risk and stand up and be counted. There's, there's, that, there's that moment where you have to rise to the occasion. You have to be bigger than yourself and you have to take a leap of faith that providing the police with the information that they need to, to arrest that, that person that, that did something potentially very heinous in, in the community, that, that's what's really of, of chief importance at that moment because, like you had just mentioned, you know, either they're going to become the victim of a crime or their friend or family member is going to become a victim of a crime, potentially by that same person or, or people that that person associates with, and then, then it's going to be too late. Because yeah. that person should have been locked up before they had the ability to go out and, and commit more and, damage. Okay, we're, we're going to take, take a short break. When we come back, I want to ask all of you, are there are certain crimes where the person, if they are convicted of it, they don't deserve a second chance. I'm going to see what our guests have to say when we come back. You're listening to Hot 97 Street Soldiers on 97.1 FM in New York City in the Tri-State. Live stream across the United States on Hot97.com and your favorite radio app. I'm Lisa Evers, Twitter at Lisa Evers, the gram also. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Hot 97 Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers, on Twitter at Lisa Evers and the gram. And also, if you're just tuning in right now, you can catch the show right after the show, actually, on my website, lisaevers.com, and I'll be tweeting out the link on Twitter, at Lisa Evers. We are focusing on second chances. 
when does someone who has been convicted of a felony deserve a second chance and when don't they and joining us for this panel Eldridge Hawkins Jr. he's a former mayor of Orange New Jersey a businessman owner of Black Belt Investigations they're licensed in New York and New Jersey he's also a retired West Orange police officer also with us Tom Verney he's a retired NYPD detective law enforcement commentator on television and radio and he also works with police departments around the country on cultural competency and diversity. Also joining us, Bishop Darren Ferguson. He's the senior pastor with the Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Arverne, that's in Far Rockaway, campus life manager, LaGuardia Community College, and author of his his autobiography, How I Became an Angry Black Man from Prison to the pulpit. And also joining us, David Chianese. He's a retired NYPD detective and founder of LESMA. That's a law enforcement and supporters for media accountability. And let me just ask all of you, are there some crimes, David, where the person does not deserve a second chance? Once they're convicted, once they've had their trial and been convicted, are there certain crimes? Yeah, I I would say it Every case is different. Every crime is different. I mean, it really has to be looked at as that. Um, you know, it, things happen in people's lives. I, I mean, I can think of plenty of cases where somebody may have killed somebody or done something that led to someone's death. They deserve that second chance. Um, but they're, you know, again, my issue isn't that. My my issue would be, you know, what after? What, what happens when they go out and if something happens again? And where do we draw the line? I don't think because someone in a desperate moment robbed a, a bodega or got into a fight and, and someone fell and cracked their head open and died that, that that person's life needs to be completely ruined. They pay their price. They move on. Um, you know, we do our best to help them out. But what happens if they don't reform and they go back into it again? And then at what point do we draw the line? All right. Bishop Darren Ferguson, how do we draw the line? Like, how do you look at somebody and say, yeah, they really need a second chance, even though on paper it's not looking good? You know, on a, on a visceral level, if I would keep it all the way real, right? I'll keep it 100. Yeah, you got to keep it 100. Say, right? mm-hmm. um, on a visceral level, there's certain things that I see that people do that anger me to the point where I go, why? And and I want to like see that example. person. For example, when children are shot through walls in their own homes. Or, exactly. Or like a child, is, a, rest a child is raped. Uh, or, or sexually abused by somebody. Those things affect me on a visceral level. But I also have to juxtapose that over the fact that I, who much is given, much is required, right? And I've been given an opportunity to, to, to have a second chance at life. So if I've been afforded that, then who am I to think that I deserve that second chance when somebody else does? So and I agree that every case has its own merits, and every, every circumstance is different, and I think every person should be considered by those things as opposed to just one thing that they did. There the has to be more. It ha- so, I mean, it sounded like an individual approach. Tom Verney, what do you think? Yeah, I, would, I mean, I could agree with both of them. I, I mean, it all depends on the, uh, the mental capacity of the person we're dealing with, too, because we have a lot of people who commit crimes that are mentally ill. So that, you know, if you're talking about removing that too. section of it where... Uh, you know, if they have a, a clear mental illness, then you know they may need a little more time, a little bit more of a timeout than than the others. Uh, you know, and and talking about you know being affected on a visceral level, I don't know how many times that we respond to, you know, one 14 year old shooting another 14 year old you know, as part of a gang initiation or whatever it may be, or gang beef or, or turf or whatever it might be. You know, then how do you justify? You know, granted, okay, it's a very young kid. Um, this kid could not foresee the you know the the ramifications of his actions for the rest of his life. 
but now he took the life of another. So that's that's the ultimate price that someone could potentially you know take against somebody else, right? Uh, it's the ultimate violation. It's something that that family, regardless of how much you know counseling they get for the rest of their lives, they're never going to forget that. So, you know, one could argue that you know the the, the appropriate punishment for this kid is to go away for the rest of their lives. One could argue that the kid the kid is immature. He you know found himself in a in a well of uh, negative you know negativity you know by being part of a gang and whatnot. Uh, so maybe he does deserve a second chance after he's done a significant amount of time, you know, to to correct himself. So it's hard to really say. To me personally, I, I just you know, murder is kind of a. It, it, you know, it's one thing if you, if you commit a crime and someone dies as a result of that. It's not intentional. You intentionally take somebody off the face of the earth. That that to me personally, on a personal level, that that's a really deep. That, re- cut. that really bothers you. Yeah, that that's and that that's hard. That's hard for me personally, to. You know, give someone a second chance after that, especially you know, in, in the case of like large shootings, you know, these mass shootings we see all oh, the time. Oh, well, yeah, I don't. I mean, you kill twenty first graders in a, in yeah, a school. I, I, you know, I'm sorry. I think we yeah, all exactly. agree on that. I think everybody, yeah. I think so, everybody I mean, would there, agree with there that. There are cases of absolutes, and then there are cases that are questionable, given the age of of the person involved and what brought them to that point. I worked with youth youth for many years. I was part of Big Brothers Big Sisters. While I was in the police department, we had a, a, pro, a project pilot project with them, where we would mentor kids. A lot of these kids were at-risk youth, you know, 10, 11, 12 years of age uh, in, in homes that were maybe unstable or broken. Uh, there was no, no father figure present, and we would mentor these kids. And, you know, with the hopes of trying to bring them back from, from crossing that line and getting involved in gang activity, it was very successful, and, and I'm, I'm very proud to have been part of that program. Uh, and, and, and I'm hoping that by, by the police being proactive and in, in being in programs like that, as we were talking about before, how is it that the police could get more involved? That's a class A example of doing of doing it like that. Of, Elders, of how what they do you think about the? Well, you know, are there are there some crimes where you just can't you can't put it behind them and give them a second chance? Well, I, obviously these mass shootings, like like we've seen. Well, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that whether or not an individual is entitled to a second chance is the wrong question, right? Because we've already we already know as fact, right, that people are going to be sentenced to a term in prison. They're going to be sentenced to a term in jail, a defined amount of time they're going to be behind bars. So unless they're going to be there forever, right, and die in that cell, they're going to get out, right? So whether or not they deserve a second chance is somewhat irrelevant because they're going to come back to society. And if they're going to complete their term and come back to the streets, it's not about a second or third or fourth chance. It's about how do we keep them from reoffending, right? What support systems do we have to put in place to prevent that cycle from continuing? And I think that's really where the discussion is and not, and it's certainly, look, if somebody's uh, robbing and stealing and they're getting rearrested and they've had opportunities, then then the judge should have the discretion and the latitude to impose stiffer and longer sentences, right? And which would remove that that threat from society. But provided that individual gets out, right? Whether it's a second chance, whether they rob, whether they committed murder, whatever it is, we don't want them to do it again. So we, we should try to support them in whatever way we can within reason, right, to prevent that from happening. And I think that there also has to be a measure of equity when we look at uh, grading or sentencing, right? And I think that that might be easier if we personalize this in some way and say, well, if it was us, nobody's perfect, or our loved ones that had committed that crime, how would we want them to be treated? But likewise, if we were the victim, Right. If it was my mother or my sister that was raped or my store that was robbed, how would we want them to be treated uh, and how would we want, uh, uh, you know, the victim or the, the actor to be treated? So I think if we can look at that uh, uh, in, through the lens of practicality uh, and also. So basically you're saying that, that it's not about whether the second chance they're coming out. They're so it's, come out. It's, it's a question is, how yeah. do we want them to come out? How do we want them to, you know, what, what do we want them to come out to, basically? Exactly. But that's the, the question. That's the that's. 
what I've been talking about for years. Even when I was in Sing Sing and 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 we found the things that work, right? The things that work. I, I went to Bronx Community College and graduated in Sing Sing. I went to New York Theological Seminary in Sing Sing. And the people who graduate from college have a a, a, a huge disparity in the recidivism rate and that they don't go back because education works. But they took education out of the prisons. So 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 what happens is and, and I heard the gentleman say he said he has to rehabilitate himself and that's the case most of the time. There is no process of rehabilitation. There's no programming. There's nothing inside the prison that helps the person along the continuum of life changing. Yes, they have uh, 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 alternatives to violence pro- projects and they have uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and all of that stuff. But that's stuff that they tell you if you don't go to this, you're not going to the board. So I go and I sit there in the front for two days so I can get the certificate so I can get out. But the, the, the issue is, is that how do we as a society surround a person with support, surround a person with opportunity, surround a person with love, and then give them the opportunity to make the right choices? As opposed to saying, to them, you got to go through this, you got to go through this, or you're not getting out. So I do it just the front so I can get out. Well, you have to have public-private partnerships. Government right. can't do it all. Exactly. The police department right. can't do it all. Right. Uh, my police director, John Rapport, always used to say the battle on gangs and such is one in the churches, right? Yes. Because that's where the, the, the people are, the synagogues, the ministers. You yes. know your flock, if you will, and you can be that bridge, right? Everybody has different resources that we can use to plug the gap and fill the holes in, in, in broken families. And I think that uh, while this is something that affects everyone, it does disproportionately affect minorities, yes. right? Um, the statistics are what they are, 60% of those that are in jail are African-American or Latino, right? And I don't think that that's necessarily just because they are black or Latino. It's hard to separate uh, race from the underlying issue. And in my view, the underlying issue is economics is the uh, poverty. and education, yes. right? Absolutely. And nobody wants to talk about that, right? right? And I think that, that if we can address that, if we can empower folks uh, and get them better quality education and get them better paying jobs, uh, then they'll be less likely to commit crimes to survive. Uh, and this is something that I know firsthand. When I was mayor, we walked down the street. The young man who was hanging out on the corner said, Mayor, look, I don't want to deal on the corner. He said, be real, but I don't have a job. But like they said, the said, drug dealers eat. are always hiring. Yeah, he, 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 right. yeah, he they said, always he, have a job. He said, he said, he said I got to eat. He said, but if you can help me get me a job, right, I'd love to get off the corner. So we started using our influence with developers and saying, hey, if you want to come make millions of dollars building homes in our town, in our city, right, then you can hire 10 or so residents from the area. Even if they're pushing a broom, a shuttle, give them trade skills. Right. You, Holland, you want Holland. my Operation, right? So this is a legal quid pro quo, not for me, but for my community, right? right. I want you, if you're going to make millions in our town, I want you to give back to our city, right? And we got him a job, and we walked down there. And next time we said, "Can you get my uncle one or something?" I said, "We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see." But but he got his job, and got right? And he got off the corner. So I, I think that that at the core of this, right, we have to start talking about education. And, and economics, and, and then we'll start seeing a systemic change down the line where minorities won't be the ones uh, locked up as, as much. So let me tell you two there. things that we've done in our church. In Mount Carmel, we, we, um, I gave up my office downstairs, right, which is a big thing for pastors, right? I gave up my <laughs> office for a program called Urban Upbound. And I gave up the office so they could come in, they could do job development, they could do training, they could do resume writing, all that stuff, right there in Mount Carmel Baptist Church five days a week. Because it made no sense to me to have a space that wasn't used by us only on Sunday and not use it for something that could benefit the community. So people can get jobs and all that right there in the church. The second thing we did is about three weeks ago, we launched a program called the Josiah Generation, which is a rights of passage mentoring program. So we're bringing young kids in. We start, we thought about 11 to 17 year olds and it ended up we got a bunch of eight and nine year olds as well. So we have wow. eight, nine through 15, 16 year olds and we're mentoring. Every kid gets a mentor. We bring them in on Saturdays. We give them breakfast. We give them lunch. We have conversations. We listen to them. We talk to them. We train them in different things. We're going to take them on trips and things like that because I, I think 
it is a community responsibility. And I feel the weight of the responsibility every day when some mother comes to me and says, my son got locked up or my son's on the street. Or in the case a couple of months ago, a mother came to me and said her son got shot in the face in the project building right next to me over a text message. Oh and then we did his, when we did his funeral, I said to the congregation, his name was Isaiah Magic Lee, rest in peace, young brother. And when Isaiah Magic Lee, when he died, I said, we're going to change the name Magic. We're going to make it mean something. So we used the acronym Making Arvern a Great and Inspiring Community. And that's what spawned the Right to Passage program. Because we have to take control of our own neighborhoods. We have to be accountable in our own neighborhoods. It's not enough for us as the church to get up and preach on Sunday, shout hallelujah, speak in tongues, foam at the mouth, flip up and down the aisles, and drive away from the community and don't give anything back. That's a scourge. That's a curse. That's nonsense. That, that, that should not be allowed. And people have to hold their houses of worship accountable to say to them, you're in the community, you're part of the community. We come here every Sunday. We pay tithes and offerings. We have to be a part of this. And preaching is not enough. It's not the scriptures that you preach about. It's the ones that you live. Right. And we're attempting in our church to live out the scripture by being there for the other, for the gang member, for the crip, for the blood, for the LGBT kid, for the guy that comes into church Sunday smelling like weed and smelling like alcohol. That's our job. That's our mandate. That's what we have to do. And this problem doesn't get solved until the people in the community say, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to work alongside the police department. We're going to do our part. And then we're going to hold them accountable to do this. But that's a big part, too, because you get, people have to remember the police were a consequence. We're not, we're not necessarily a solution. Solution comes in the neighborhood, comes from the community, comes from the church, comes from the business owners, comes from mom and dad at home, or just mom or just dad, whatever the case may be, big brothers and big sisters. That's where your solution is. Now, when all else fails and you don't know what to do and you can't do, that's when we come in. Although we will be your friend, the, 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 the reality is, is we're there to, to take care of a problem that can't be taken care of at home. But there is a big problem with people not wanting to take care of it. I remember the radio runs and going to, to, to disputes, family disputes, and the mother's there. He won't turn off his PlayStation. Well, you know what? You know what? Be a, be a parent. <laughs> Get up and do something about it. I'm not here for I mean, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to right. do, throw him in cuffs, shoot him? What do you want me yeah, to but do? See, but see, that's, be not, that's, that's not fair either because we are weakening the parents' ability to right. discipline their no, child. No, I agree, but right? it's it, not it, us, the police, no, or, no, or it's, the, it's the, the system. system. It's, it's the, the system and it's it, the politicians. You know, it, it's unfortunate, right? Because there's been a time we, I had the process of uh, a, a mother who I really didn't want to arrest. But by the time it got to me, right, it had gone through the guidance counselor right. and everything else. And, and the there's child, no other way. And the child was quote unquote abused when right. she really wasn't damaged, but I guess she got smacked or hit or something. You know, but the, we're taking away that punishment. When I grew up, my parents took to me with paddles, my parents, whatever. Was right, that was a different show. That was a different show. That's what we were talking about the Adrian Peterson and the switch. You know, about a teacher. Yeah. I remember getting it from a teacher, getting sure. whacked across the hand. Yeah, you don't too. get that anymore. But, but you need no. that. You need that discipline in the home. Uh, and when the home. But, is but as a society, let, let me ask you this, all of you too. As, and as a society, are we blurring the distinctions between what's acceptable behavior and what's unacceptable behavior? I, I th and is that I, part of the police community problem? Uh, I, I think that uh, certainly it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction as it relates to laws and legality. Um, but I, I think that sometimes our, percep our, our perceptions are based on what we see, right? If we get bad information in, we're going to have bad, bad thoughts, results. Going, results going out, right? And sometimes when we look to the media, we see a fraction of what occurred, right? And, and I've seen both sides, right? I've seen good police calls, bad police calls. But sometimes we'll see things that look horrible on film, 30 seconds, but not see what led up to those 30 seconds, right? So out of context, right, what occurred looks improper, right? So I, I think we have to have a fair and balanced approach to how we look at these things and realize, like he said, 
said, everything has, everybody has to do their part. And it doesn't have to be a huge uh, initiative, right? We had a, a brother, Phi Beta Sigma, come in and just start teaching STEP programs when I was in the city. And it was very interesting what happened was that the high school kids, they started wearing Greek letters instead of gang letters, right? It became cool to start doing STEP programs. And he started taking him to colleges. His name was Shay, uh, around the New Jersey and tri-state area. But it, it put them into an, another, another section, lane, another, another lane, lane, right? Well, we, and, and, they, and he started to fill the gap of what was missing. But that's it, what it is when there's, no, when there's Absolutely. no gap. Absolutely. When there's Lisa, a big gap. Know, I think what it comes down to is, is and we're talking about here a collective collaborative effort right of, of all hands on deck right uh unfortunately i think a lot of times it, it's incumbent upon the educational system we can't assume that kids are being taught proper manners and respect at home right so we, we'd like to think that and, and in many cases they are but we, we were discussing earlier about a lot of times that in a lot of these cases where it is a, la a lack of respect it's a lack of respect for people's lives mm -hmm. you know like you know, we, we've been hearing black lives matter police lives matter yeah, but you know the bottom line is that all lives matter, yes. and if you are not respectful to the life of someone else, well, you just think that gratuitous violence is just a way of life, and and it's just okay to to take somebody out because you don't, you don't agree with them or they're on your turf or you know that they're on your corner. That's nonsense. You know, but so if you don't value your own life, you have to exactly, and it all starts with you. You ever have, have you have to have a respect for your own existence yeah. and the existence of others, and whether or not you want to play nice in the sandbox or not. You know, but it comes down to educating kids at an early level in the school system. You know, I can't tell you how many times as, as a police officer I would be in the schools as a beat cop, mm -hmm. you know, covering a high school with, you know, 3,000 kids in it. And they, you know, all right, so the kids knew me. They knew the, you know, the youth officer. They knew that we were, like, officer friendly, so to speak. So they could come to us if they had an issue or whatever, and we handle it. You know, but, I, you know, as one cop, you can't be in every single school in, in the city. There's 1.1 million kids in the city but, school system. But I think we also need to look to look at why we call police and when we call police. I, I think you, uh, you had what mentioned earlier. What David was saying. It's, right? it, you know, there's a, it's at a crisis sure, point sure. at that point. We, we right. look at, uh, I forget the, the locality, but there's that big incident with the officer who dragged the child out of the seat in the classroom. Mm -hmm. In South Carolina. You know, uh, yeah. you know my, my view of that was simple. The officer should have never been called, mm -hmm. right? There should have been several levels before you got to the cop, right? right. Why was a guidance counselor called first or the principal right why well, was principal it? was called in that case just so you know okay and, okay and i'm only saying because my organization represents that officer okay. okay um as well as several other officers the principal was called and the principal after the teacher had told her get up give me the calculator what uh, not calculator sorry the cell phone, phone. Oh. Uh, and then all right get up and go to the office no no f you f you principal comes in listen you got to give your phone the, that goes on no f you and says okay well now you're trespassing leave the school mm -hmm. you're not okay get the officer the other important thing to mention is the the officer was in that room for three minutes prior to any video camera going on speaking to her talking to her pleading with her and then when he moved to take her out that's when your phones went on because that's when it got interesting. Mm. And that's a problem too, which you brought up too. That thirty second window looks worse than it is. Right. That lead Okay, up I don't want to get there. off on that whole incident yeah. because we're just we're unfortunately we're ju we're just about out of time. And there's always I mean, I say this as a reporter too. It's like you have to try to understand what led up to the particular incident Absolutely. in the first place from from all sides. But we are just about out of time. I'm gonna ask Bishop Darren Ferguson to give us some final words here. Uh little maybe a little inspiration after all well, this heavy talk. I think that it's it's again, it's our job. The is not coming. I think that we have to continue to, I pray for police officers. I'm the son of a police officer. I have police officers to serve in my church. And 
I, I think that it's it's time for us to start really having serious, difficult conversations that lead to serious, difficult change. We, we have to talk about the ounce of prevention, but the pound of cure is much more lucrative for everybody. We have to talk about um, police community relations. We have to talk about Black Lives Matter. We have to talk about white privilege. We have to talk about our school system. We have to talk about the disparity in economics. We have to talk about uh, wage per hour. We have to talk about all of these things and have those conversations. But at the end of the day, it comes down to individuals making the decision that I'm going to do better and I'm going to be better. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to be the change I want to see. I live my life every day to try to be the example that people see and say, if when I'm asking people to do this work, when I'm working with healing communities and, and teaching churches how to be welcoming and affirming communities to people who've come out of prison, I am I'm the possibility of the work that I'm asking people to do. And I think these gentlemen are that as well. Because when a former guy who did nine years and three former police officers can sit down at the table of brotherhood and discussion and say, we need to solve these issues and come to some common ground, then it's possible in every area of life. And everything is possible. I want to thank all of you for being with us. Eldridge Hawkins Jr., Tom Verney, uh, that was Bishop Darren Ferguson you were just hearing, and David Chianese, thank you so, so much for being part of this episode of Street Soldiers. And if you just tuned in just a couple seconds ago you want to hear this again you can listen on lisaevers.com to the free podcast or or the link click on the link that i'm going to be posting in a little bit on twitter at lisa evers thank you to our general manager dion levingston our program director p.o farrow and my whole street soldiers team here executive producer tone capone associate producer rose d assistant producer mia bell uh, board op and digital support michael medium digital assistant the one and only tj and production assistants from Marcus. And remember, check me out on the Fox 5 News at 5, 6, and 10. Hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, Instagram. You know the routine. We out here in these streets. Say hi when you, say hi when you see me in the street. Don't just stare, okay? Yeah, we can take a picture. It's all cool. We're all family. And remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. I'm Lisa Evers. Push for peace.